You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. My name is Zach, and if if you're new here at the Vine, I'm one of the pastors here, and you'll hear more about uh, how to get to know us as a church at the end. Brian will give some announcements, and uh, we'd love to get to know you if you're new and help you get plugged in. Um, and if this church isn't the right fit for you, we'd love to help you find the right church in Madison. So we're, we're not opposed to that conversation either. Well, we are finishing up our series in the life of David. We'll have only uh, one more week. Next week, we'll finish that up. And then we'll start a series uh, in the book of Hebrews. And I'm really looking forward to that. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's actually the last chapter in the book of Second Samuel in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back tables, and you can have one of those if you would like. Second Samuel, starting in chapter 24. Our account today is really a story of ambition and pride on the one hand, ambition and pride on, on the one hand, but also humility and remorse on the other. And I think there's going to be something here for all of us to learn from. There certainly was something for the original audience reading this, hearing it read, and also for us many, many, many centuries later. That's the beauty of God's word. The human condition hasn't changed that much in 3,000 years or so. And God's word speaks to it. I know for sure that from speaking for myself that I can relate to some of the sinful ambition we see here in David, but hopefully as well the beauty of God's mercy in humility. So 2 Samuel 24, the text starts with a bit of a theological mystery that I just want to speak to. Um, And look at verse 1 here. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he the Lord, incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So go back to the beginning of the verse. We we see that God is angry at his people Israel. And the Bible doesn't say for sure why. We could come up with a lot of reasons. God's people have certainly give, given the Lord a lot of reasons to, to be provoked to anger. And there's some d- details that we didn't cover in the, in the previous chapters. Chapter 21, for example, could be what happens there. You can go back and read it. It could be the fact that so many people, like we learned about last week, so many people in Israel went with Absalom and away from God's anointed king, David, and they stirred up this civil war that we saw last week. But based on the storyline of the Bible, it's not hard to see that God's people are oftentimes very wayward. In my Bible reading plan, uh, I'm in 1 Kings right now, 
And one of the repeated refrains among the leaders of God's people in First and Second Kings is this. Whatever king, uh, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see it over and over again. God's leaders, the representatives of God's people. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord over and over again if you read First and Second Kings. So there could be a lot of reasons. And God oftentimes brings his people back through fatherly discipline. And so that's the first thing we have in view here. God's displeasure with the sinfulness of his people. But then consider what, what the text says. Look at verse 1 again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, the Lord, what does he do? He incites David against them. Saying, go number Israel and Judah. So it says, God incited David to take a census. That's what it means here, to go number Israel and Judah. Take a census of the people. But wait, there's more information. There's a parallel account in 1 Chronicles. So if you flip over to 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, it'll be on the screen if you don't want to flip over there, but you can if you want to see it for yourself. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, it's on the screen as well, then, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So 2 Samuel says God incited David. 1 Chronicles 21 says that Satan incited David. Now, which is it? Did, did God do this? Did Satan do this? Did David do this? Well, this seems challenging to understand at first blush. But I want to I show you that the Bible certainly has a category for what we see here. Now, for sure there's mystery here. But this is not unlike the account that we have of Job's life. Anybody remember Job? The account of Job. What do we learn there? Well, we learn that, that, that God says to, to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says to God, ultimately, the only reason why he still praises you, why he still loves you, is because you bless him. Take away the blessings, he's not going to be on your side anymore. That's basically what Satan says to God about Job. And so Satan asks for God's permission to afflict Job, and he does. God grants that permission. So Satan is an active party in the suffering of Job, but ultimately, Satan has to ask God's permission. So Satan, in the life of Job, does what he desires to do, but God uses that for divine purposes. Now, if you want to go deep in the book of Job, we never get the exact reasons why God allowed this, why God permitted this. And that's another sermon for another day. But the, the Bible doesn't blush that saying, God is good. And he did not sin against Job. And Job 
if you read the end of the book of Job, you see that Job just covers his mouth and he says, I, I will not question the Lord. I will not uh, ascribe evil to the Lord. But the point here this morning is that both are active in what happens to Job. For different reasons and different motivations. The Bible doesn't blush on this. There's another account um, in Peter's life. And Jesus kind of pearl, peels back the curtain on we wage, not, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We wage war not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. Jesus kind of peels that curtain back a little bit for Peter, just a little bit. And he tells him, you can look on the screen in, in Luke 22. This is what Jesus says to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So, so what's happening here? Satan has to demand. Demand to who? Demand to God. Ask God to have Peter. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. You will hold fast. Ultimately. So God's the one who decides. Satan is an active agent for sure, but God holds the leash and he will rein him in and give him slack as he sees fit. Paul says a similar thing as well, where you just see how this works and how the Bible just kind of asserts it, doesn't explain it in terms of all the details that we might like to have, but just simply asserts it. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he was given this thorn in his flesh, and we don't know what that is. Scholars debate, debate what that might be. But he, Paul says, you can see there, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So he gives some credit to Satan for this suffering that he was enduring. But he says, this was given to me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. So he knows that ultimately the Lord is sovereign over Satan's activity. And the Lord said to Paul, it's going to be good for you to continue to have this. And it's going to be good for you to see what? That my grace is sufficient for you in the midst of this suffering, this trial. So the thorn in some sense is related to Satan, but Paul asks God to take it away. God says it's okay to leave it. Both God and Satan are somehow involved in his suffering. Satan for his destruction for sure, but God always uses our suffering for our long-term good. This is a clear promise in the scriptures. So, so this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's really important for us to understand theologically. When we're suffering I want us as a church to rest in this. Satan is not equal with God. Satan is not equal with God. God is completely in control. Whatever comes to pass, God is in control. But in a secondary sense, Satan works in this world. The Bible asserts that. The Bible says, 1 Peter, that he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And, and, and the Bible says, resist him. And the Bible also says that God never tempts someone to sin, nor does he sin himself. 
So how exactly is it that God can ordain a sin or incite David to sin without himself being a sinner is a mystery that we're not going to unpack this morning, but I just want you to see this broadly from the scriptures, just that the Bible does have categories for this. But that's not the main point of this text. It's a theological mystery. The Bible doesn't fully explain. It simply asserts it. God stands behind the actions of David for good purposes. Satan stands behind David's action for evil purposes. Either way, what we see clearly in the text is David is held accountable. David is held accountable for his actions, and the Bible is clear on this, and there is no mystery in this And that's what we're going to continue to unpack this morning. So look back again with me at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So kings in ancient times would do this usually to kind of know how strong they were. It's like a, man, I need to get a, a, I need to get a report on my bank account. It's kind of like a report on your army account, your people account. Like how big is this nation that I rule over? It represents strength. Or it could represent weakness if you think you've got a million, but you only have 200,000. So that's why ancient kings would typically do this kind of thing in taking in a census. Look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing. Interesting, Joab is seen sometimes as kind of a a rogue, sometimes a bit of a thug, but here he speaks the truth. Here he's on the side of of God's holiness, of, of righteousness. He knew it was wrong and told David so. Look at verse four. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So the king's authority reigns here. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Now, let's ask this question. Why was this a sin on David's part? Most scholars would argue that what David is doing here is kind of a flex. It's kind of a flex. He's trusting in his numbers He's resting in the strength of his army, the strength of his, you know, his people, because he can draft an army at any time as he sees fit. Like, how many fighting men are there in Israel? And he's trusting in his numbers more than he's trusting in God. Like, if I trust my bank account more than I trust God. It was ultimately an expression of pride a desire for self-reliance and not God-reliance. Expression of pride and not, like we just sang, I depend on you. It was the opposite of that. Like, 
God, I'm not going to depend on you. I'm going to depend on my numbers. One scholar writes this. You can see it on the screen. By relying on a census to assess his strength, David showed a lack of faith in God's promises and providential care. The plague that ensued resulted in the death of many Israelites, served as a punishment and a stark reminder of the consequences of David's actions. So let's keep reading. They, they go, and they, it, it tells us in the text uh, that they go throughout the land of Israel, counting up everybody. But now we have a turn at verse 10. And it's a turn for the good. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Here's something interesting about the progress of this text. In the progress of this text this morning, we see progress in the life of David. He's still sinning, but he's still making progress. Here's what I mean. In the past, like we saw with David and Bathsheba, and in the account with Absalom a little bit, in the past, David has needed a third party to come and awaken him to his sin. Nathan comes, tells this long parable. David gets all worked up, like you remember. And then Nathan turns it around on him and says, you are the man. And then he's awakened to the gravity and the seriousness of his sin. Here in this text, we don't see that. We see that David kind of comes to his senses on his own. In the past, he needed someone to come and call him out. But here, we get the impression that David softens his heart without, without that and comes quickly to repentance. I think it's important to see that. Let's keep reading in verse 11. So these are the consequences. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. So again, David shows progress here. He's ultimately trusting in God. What? That God is merciful. You see that? His mercy is great. He trusts God. He knows that God's judgment is mixed with mercy. And oftentimes, like he says, God's enemies have zero mercy. Verse 15. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David foreshadows Jesus here. He says, Let me stand between the wrath of God and God's people. But as the account continues, we're going to see this further come to light, how, how David is going to foreshadow the ultimate king that Israel needs. He's going to foreshadow the gospel, the future gospel that's going to come to pass vividly in a few centuries. Let's take a look. Let's finish this chapter. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has the Lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take up, or take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So what's David doing here? Well, it's pretty obvious. He's offering a sacrifice to God, right? And it's important for us to ask, what are sacrifices in the Old Testament? How did they function? What was their purpose? Why is David doing this? Well, a sacrifice in the Old Testament was simply a substitute. They're a substitute that God simply chose to accept as a means of his wrath being transferred to an animal. The death of an animal. The death of the animal is a reminder to the person offering the animal that it should have been them. Like, death is the penalty for sin. We see that from cover to cover of the Bible. Death is the penalty for sin. Sin is very serious. See, we think that that sounds harsh. But what God might say is, 
Don't you see how sin is so very serious? Like God's holiness is a big deal. The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. What you're owed for, for sin, wages, those wages are death. But this animal is going to pay the wages instead of the sinner. This animal is going to pay the wages instead of the sinner. God's wrath is poured out on the animal in the place of the sinner as the substitute. So we see justice and mercy perfectly mingled here. Wrath is poured out on the animal as the substitute. And the sinner receives the mercy of God. Does this not sound familiar? See, this is the gospel in Old Testament form. This is the shadow, and Jesus is the reality. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. So in this way, we see David at the end of his life, he's still a sinner. Israel for sure needs a better king. But at the same time, he models repentance as God's leader, as he offers atonement for the sins of God's people and himself. And what happens? The the end of the account, the end of the book of 2 Samuel, the, the plague of God's wrath is removed. The plague of God's wrath is removed. So here, David acts as king and priest here. He foreshadows Jesus, king and priest. So here's the question for us today. What what does 2 Samuel 24 have to do with us? What does 2 Samuel 24 have to do with us? See, most of us don't have a, a kingdom that we rule over like David. We're not amassing armies to trust in. But I think here's the question. What are the things we're tempted to trust in over and over again that we might want to count? Like where are the spreadsheets of our hearts that we're tempted to just obsess over and to trust in over and against the provision of God? Were we tempted to check the numbers again and again? You can think of a lot of examples. Maybe the one, obvious one for most of us is, is money. It might be your grades if you're a student. It might be a, a performance evaluation at work. It might be my children's grades. It might be medical numbers. Maybe it's gas prices. Maybe it's the stock market. But take a second and and reflect on that. Like, what is is that for me where I can see my heart similar to David as we see in the text here? Like, like if the bank account is trending down, my love for God tracks with that, and 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 my love for God grows cold. Or if the bank account is trending up, 
man, I, I just love God today. But what does that say? If that's the case, what does that say we're trusting in ultimately? What are you tempted to trust in other than God's promise to provide? All those things I rattled off, those are, those are good things. And there's a degree to which you should probably know how much money you have or what the, the blood test that the doctor ran and what those numbers are. But I think for most of us, we're not erring on the side of being loose with those things. We're probably erring on the side of being too obsessed with those things at the expense of, man, I'm just trusting the Lord. That's my default setting. Like the banner I hang over all that stuff is, I will trust in the Lord. And then from that perspective, we can look at the spreadsheet, we can look at the numbers, we can look at the grades, but it's all covered in that disposition of the Lord is my shepherd. He will provide, right? So where are you tempted to trust in in yourself? Where are you tempted to self-reliance and not God-reliance? My hunch is, and this is my own heart, ask yourself if this is your heart. This is me. I think ground zero for this is just when hard things come into my life. And I would guess it would be the same for you. Hard things, whatever they may be, what's our knee-jerk reaction? What's our default setting when that hard thing comes into my life? Is it to, first, I'm going to run to my knees in prayer and say, God, and sing that song, I depend on you, like we just sang this morning. Like your first reaction will show you where your heart is. The words that you use immediately when you get that news will show where your heart is. Is it to run to my knees in dependence and reliance on God, or is it to control the situation? Problem solving in my own power with no regard for dependence on God, probably evidenced in prayer. I'm convicted by that. I'm convicted by that. Th- think about David. Think about David and his life. We've seen a lot about David in the last few months. Like in this moment, when he's tempted to, to trust in the numbers, to trust in the stats, to trust in the strength of his army, he should have stopped himself and asked, why am I trying to number these people so that I can trust in them? Why would I trust in them more than I trust in God? And just think about David's past. David comes onto the scene in this dramatic episode with Goliath, right? What jumps off the page in that, in that account? Is it that David's awesome? No, David himself says the reason why he won is because what? The battle is the Lord's. What does that mean? That means that David is confessing to himself and to everyone who would listen God is in control. Who gets the victory? Ultimately, God gets the victory. He just used me as his vessel. David saw that from day one. Right? What about in all the madness that we saw in David and his interactions with Saul, his relationship to Saul, 
Over and over again, he trusts in the Lord. He could have killed Saul a few times, and he trusts in the Lord instead, that the Lord is going to handle this, and he does. See, David, in, in chapter 24, could have looked to his past and reminded himself that he doesn't need to trust in chariots or war horses because the battle is the Lord's. So I don't need to take the census. Because my past and the faithfulness of the Lord that, that I've seen over and over again in my past is going to inform me as I move into the future. So let's, let's use that as a model. And the Bible has a category for this as a model that we're going to close with this morning. When you're tempted to trust in anything other than the Lord... In any challenging scenario you find yourselves in, and we all find ourselves in lots of them, right? Fight for this mindset. Look to the provision of God in your past to add fuel to the fire of faith for the future. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Look to the provision of God in your past to add fuel to the fire of faith for your future. Your past reminds you of why you have hope for the future. This is a biblical category from beginning to end. The prophets call out in the Old Testament to God's people and they say, remember the prophet speaking for God. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. What is the prophet doing there? For God's people, he's saying, look to your past. Don't be forgetful. Look to your past. You're enduring something hard. You're complaining. The prophet comes and says, remember, remember, don't forget, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I was faithful then. I will be faithful again. It might not be in your timing. It might test your patience. God is God. He has good purposes in all of it. Remember. Look to your past to give you faith for the future. So you have examples of this in your life. I have examples of this in my life. I could, I could list many, many of them. But I'll just, I'll just give you one. We moved here 13 years ago to plant the Vine Church, myself and two other families and we knew we had to raise a ton of money to pull that off. And so for nine months, I sat down with anybody who would listen and cast vision for this church. And we had a goal number that we had to raise. And it was big. It was overwhelming. It was going to be a lot of work. It was going to be a lot of coffee appointments. Hey, can I tell you about this church? Would you want to be a part of it and get on board and support us in prayer and finances? Did that a lot. And little by little, what happened? Well, here we are, 13 years later, the church exists. God provided. God provided. So in light of that, if I'm stressed about money in the future, I look back and go, man, God was so faithful to provide back then. Has he changed? He has not changed. So let me rest in that as I think about what it's going to take for whatever financially moving into the future. That's just one example. I'll give you a lot of financial examples in my life. 
But what is that for you? How can you rehearse those memories? I think you might even want to write them down. Write them down somewhere. Because we're so forgetful. We're just like those people in ancient Israel that needed a prophet to come to us and say, remember, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. We don't have prophets in the same way to, to remind you. How about you be a prophet for yourself and, and just write it down in your Bible. Oh, remember that time when this happened and we didn't think we were going to make it and God provided and you know the details? Write them down. If you're a parent, remind your kids of them. Let's not be forgetful of how, how God has been so faithful. See, David didn't need to rest in the strength of his numbers and the number of his fighting men. He saw so clearly that the battles of the Lord's with Goliath, with Saul, his past should have informed his present decision in this instance for our text today. And so how can we learn from that this morning? How can you make a point to rehearse and remind yourself of God's faithfulness to you in the past? And may those thoughts squash the sinful impulse that we see in David this morning to take matters into your own hands and sinfully maybe try to over-control situations that are only going to be controlled by the Lord. I want to close with this verse because it's the ultimate example in the Bible of this. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And, and may we memorize this verse to fuel our faith for the future in light of our past. Look at the past, present, future language in this text. This is Paul writing to an ancient church in Rome. They're facing some really hard stuff, persecution, death, completely marginalized. And how does he try to encourage them? Just with the exact same thing that we've been talking about this morning. He says, he... Jesus, who did not spare his own, or God, who did not spare his own son, sorry, so God the Father, he, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. So there it is, that, that verb gave is what? It's past tense. So he's saying, this happened in your past, ancient Roman Christians. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That happened in your past. Christ was given for you to meet your greatest need in your time of greatest need. So if that happened, look at the logic of the verse that Paul is saying. If that happened, remember your past, how God has been so faithful, how will he, future tense, will he, how will he not also with him gracious give us all things? What's he saying? If he did it in the past, you can trust him in the future. He knows what you need. He's not oblivious to it. The cross and the empty tomb is the ultimate indication that God has been faithful in your life. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know that. Rehearse that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe you need to see that for the first time. That God sent his one and only son to be the substitute for you if you're willing to receive it. Our sin demands wrath. God is holy. He will not be mocked. 
but he's also infinitely merciful so that anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith and will receive the substitute of himself in Jesus, God himself in Jesus, laying down his life for you to bear the wrath of God like those ancient animals in the Old Testament, Jesus is the ultimate of that. He's not the shadow, he's the reality of the one who stands in the place and takes the wrath that you should have deserved. The wrath that you deserve, that you should have received. And if you receive that, you can become a Christian and know that this verse applies to you. And if you are a Christian this morning, let this encourage you deeply. Let this encourage you deeply. God is not unaware. He has provided, and he will provide again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth that we see. Thank you that you have given us so many reasons in our lives to trust you. Lord, I pray we would walk out of here today remembering these things. May our our past fuel our future. May we not trust in ourselves. May we not trust in the numbers. Help us, Lord. We need your help in this. We we feel weak at times, but we, we trust in the fact that when we come to you in faith and repentance, you fill us with your spirit. And give us all that we need uh, to be able to trust you and to persevere into the future. Lord, for, the, for those that are here this morning that are enduring a situation where they need to hear this word this morning, I pray that it would be um, just burned onto their hearts in a way that enables them to move into the future with hope. We ask this in Jesus' name.